From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. When you need to know what's going on around the world, stay with Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to hour three of Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. Now, you might be scratching your head wondering how it is that this hour we're going to be talking about a story that happened 55 years ago. Well, that's because events that happened then, even today, we're still learning new things about the government MK Ultra mind control and its reality about what was done in secret to our own flesh and blood. It's tragic, it's horrific, and it centres around a story from 1969 and Charles Manson, and in particular, a lawyer who gets a lady who's been behind bars for half a century, Leslie Van Houten, out of prison, despite not one but two Californian governors refusing to let her out, even if the judge said so. A man who gives 10 years of his life to be able to work on this. And you wonder, why would anyone care about someone who was involved with one of the most horrific sets of murders in US history, notorious to this very day, because it is in the nuance and the detail that you will discover. And I'll say this, I reckon every single person who's watching today saw the 1993 film, The Shawshank Redemption. And in that film, we learn about Morgan Freeman's character, Red, and Tim Robbins' character, who become best friends. In fact, what is many considered to be a non-sexual platonic love story. But in it, Morgan Freeman's character is a murderer, convicted murderer. And by the end of the film, all of us are wanting to see the man get out of jail and to meet up with his friend Andy. And it is then that you realise that people can change behind bars. But what if the influence in the beginning was not even of your own doing? And we start to get into the nuance here, the mind control and the cult before we even knew what cults were. How's that for a premise for this interview that we're going to have this hour? Well, Rich Pfeiffer is a private practice attorney specialising in criminal federal appellate practice civil law cases and human rights, and mostly recently represented Leslie Van Houten successfully in her decade-long campaign to obtain parole from the state of California after the 1969 Tate and LaBianca murders. Rich Pfeiffer's practice is based in Silverado, California, and prior to his career in the law, he was a US Navy SEAL and broke world records in skydiving, and his adventures did not stop. Rich Pfeiffer, welcome to Weekends. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks, Rich. Uh, what a story to get involved with. And uh, as I've just read there in your bio, you know, skydiving and Navy SEAL, and you become a lawyer. The the, the story of uh, of the Sharon Tate murder, the LaBianca murders and Charles Manson, uh, you, you must have been a, a, a young man uh, when this, this, this story happens. And then yet some almost, what, half a century later or 40 years later, you get involved with this. Can you tell us how you learnt about this story way back in 1969. I was in New York and all of this happened in California across the other side of the country. I heard about the murders. I just thought they were crazy people in California and I didn't know anything about it. Um, in 1969, the New York Mets won their first world championship. I was a Mets fan. So that's that was my focus that year. 
<laughs> so fair enough. And of course, it's it's a story that keeps going on, doesn't it? Because as you said, it just looked like a bunch of crazy murders from crazy people at the end of the 60s. Um, it was uh, a journalist, um, uh, I can't remember the first name, Deutsch, who said that it was when the 60s ended. It was like the it, all, the, all the sex, drugs and rock and roll lost us innocence at the time of the Manson murders. And we moved into a, a very different era. And so we looked forward and, and, and we saw, you know, it wasn't for, you know, years and years later before Manson was uh, interviewed in jail and there was no remorse or anything like that. He looked even more crazy. Uh, and of course, he only died in 2017. So that is a very, very long time, 48 years or so to spend um, locked up in captivity and be as, uh, as, as in control and yet to completely be out of control. And yet it was his ability to be able to recruit these young women who no one ever suspected could have been possibly involved with these horrific murders. Um, is there a stage when you start scratching your head and thinking there's got to be more to this story now when you decide to get involved with the case with Leslie Van Houten? I got involved with it because Leslie had earned it. Um, I was going to the prison. I was trying to reform the parole system. Um, you know, I, I had some paying forward to do in my life, and, and I thought that that was a really good place to start. And um, I met Leslie there, but I wasn't representing her. Um, I was representing other women. I was representing battered women. I thought that they were a sympathetic group and I would start with them. And, and that failed because um, these people were beat up so bad so many times that they had no remorse. And when I was taking the court were the transcripts of parole hearings. And so that failed. Um, but Leslie was assisting me in calming these ladies down before their parole hearings and afterwards. And she'd been to more parole hearings than anybody else in the state of California as, you know, defendant. And, um, you know, I told her, if you ever, you know, want me to do anything, you know, I'll do anything you want. You've earned it. And, uh, you know, about 10 years later, she asked me to, you know, represent her. So, you know, I couldn't say no. No, no, absolutely not. And this is the wonderful thing about the legal profession that uh, I think most lawyers cop uh, sort of a, a pretty bad rap. And of course, you can go through an experience where you're a paying customer of a lawyer uh, and you can get treated badly or or, or you get overcharged or, or, or you don't get the result that you're looking for. But the other side of the legal profession is the ability to be able to do the work that you've gone to do here and the idea of perhaps pro bono work. You would have to think, Rich, that there isn't a lot of billable hours in being able to um, represent somebody who's been in prison for the best part of 30, 40 or 50 years who's able to provide any form of remuneration for the work that you're doing. So there has to be a cause, and this must what be what drives you in the first place to become a legal practitioner and go through the hard yards of, of, of studying and working and doing. Is this what you talk about, the, the idea of paying it forward, that you wanted to give back in, in a way that was effectively entirely unique? That That's the whole thing is, um, yeah, no, I, get, I was given opportunities I didn't deserve and I made the most of them. And um, so it was my turn to give back. And uh, this was my big pro bono project. And it, it turned into quite a big one. In, in legal history, is there anything like it? Is Leslie Van Houten still the only person in the Manson murders to be released from jail, in prison? No, Steve Grogan um, got released a long, long time ago. I don't know when. Um, and uh, I believe he was the only one. Um, a lot of the people um, cut deals. Uh, 
Linda Kasabian cut a deal to testify against um, the defendants in the, in the trials, so they didn't charge her. Um, some of the Manson family members who were involved were never charged, so they never went to prison. Um, so, but but of all the ones that were charged and convicted, Leslie's the only one that got out. Right. So so that that being the point there, that uh, so this is a, a virtual miracle then to get her out of uh, out of prison fifty years on, uh, and and photographs that we see. I mean, she, she's she's aged quite well. I mean, she goes to jail. She, she's involved with this crime at what some like nineteen years of age. Can we go back and just talk about um, how it is that you realise that um, she might not necessarily have been in control of her actions in this cult under the uh, the, the the power of uh, Charles Manson. Well, it was common knowledge all along that Manson was in charge of all of these people. He controlled them. He, they did what he wanted. Um, you know, I didn't understand the details of it at the time. I, I didn't know anything about it until I got into it. And the more I got into it, the more I saw that he was using some high level, you know, control techniques and, um, you know, he, he was using drugs, um, LSD in particular, uh, marijuana almost every night, uh, LSD three to four times a week. And he had no shortage of that. And um, he, it started out as just a hippie commune. And then um, a, he went out on a drug deal that went bad and he shot a guy named Bernard Crow. He thought he killed him. And that's when this cult turned into a, a murderous kind of a thing. Um, and um, it just got worse and worse. And so the, the story goes on and it, it, it talks about uh, Manson wanting to start some sort of race war uh, that uh, he, he wants to be able to to blame uh, things on, on, on the black community. And then there's this decision to go and um, uh, raid the, um, the house where Sharon Tate was, presumably where she's eight and a half months pregnant. She's um, living or, or, or involved with Roman Polanski, who's out of town or out of the country on the day. Uh, so this process, what was the, um, the reasoning why they targeted that house? I believe it was Terry Melcher, who was a record producer, and Manson was a very good musician. Um, he wrote one of the Beach Boy songs. And um, he, um, uh, Terry Melson, uh, Melcher's mother was Doris Day, a famous actress. And she told Terry, you got to get out of the house. Those people are crazy. So he moved out about three or four months or so before the murders. And Manson had been to the house. It wasn't anything random. It was not, not like he'd never seen the place before. And uh, so he, he, knew his, he knew the house. He knew what he was doing. And um, now Manson never killed anybody. He went in there. He set things up. And he walked out. And he had Tex Watson being in charge of the murder scenes. And, um, but he never actually killed anybody. And this is the thing that most people who sort of scrape over the story assume that he's the mass murderer, but no, he's the uh, the controller. And that's the point because that's where this story is going to go. Uh, we'll get into it in the next segment about the MK Ultra, et cetera, and the, and the mind control programs, which are just uh, astonishing. But um, most people, when they when they look back into the story, I mean, the, the, the story of Roman Polanski, I mean, later on and and where he went and got exiled, et cetera, this is way before that. So he's, 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 he's with Sharon Tate, who at the time appears to be one of the most beautiful looking women that anyone 
anyone's ever seen. She's, as I said, eight and a half months pregnant. And uh, and and the police officer, who was only a young man at the time, arrives and uh, and realizes what's going on. He reports the same thing. Couldn't believe this, this this happened to this woman. And then, of course, the reports of just the the the, the viciousness, the violence, something that they could never ever have imagined. But of course, this is done um, by women under the control of Manson because the police officers, the journalists, no one could accept that this would even be possible, right? No, and it wasn't just the women he controlled. He controlled the guys that were at the ranch as well. Mm. So he's got this power over them, but the uh, the stabbings and multiple stab wounds, etc., cetera, are, are, are quite vicious. Is it presumed, therefore, that at the time that these people are under uh, under uh, induced uh, drugs or, or, or mind control or both, how was it determined by the courts? When uh, the murders happened, Leslie was not under the influence. Um, she had um, smoked marijuana earlier in the day, but she didn't feel like she was under the influence uh, of drugs. She was under the influence of Charles Manson. And he portrayed himself as Jesus Christ um, coming back in, you know, in form again. And um, everybody believed it. And this is the thing, and I, I remember watching uh, the interview that you uh, you did on 60 Minutes Australia, and it was that uh, the, the same sort of understanding or, or lack of understanding because, you know, people go, hang on a second, how could you believe that? How is that even a plausible scenario? But this is the point of the cult, right? Because you're isolated in a commune. Uh, there is drugs being thrown around. This man is uh, seems to have some sort of special power, which literally they were under, under control of. It, it therefore would seem to serve a perfectly understandable and justifiable in a court of law legal argument that these people were under an influence that they could not get themselves out of. And, and that was the defense that Leslie used. Um, she had three trials. In the first trial, um, her attorney died during the trial and a new attorney came in and uh, did the closing arguments, but he didn't see all the witnesses. And he even stated that he, he wasn't competent to do the closing arguments because he hadn't seen all the witnesses. The Supreme Court reversed uh, Leslie's conviction. And that would, in the first trial, they were all sentenced to death. So Leslie's death sentence was reversed by the Supreme Court. The second trial, five jurors hung out um, for manslaughter, saying she didn't intend to kill anybody. And then they had a third trial. Uh, in the third trial, the DA went, instead of um, trying to prove that Leslie intended to kill somebody, uh, because they knew that they had trouble in the second trial trying to prove that, they used the aiding and abetting theory um, and that's what got her convicted. And then after she was convicted, the judge um, who heard all the witnesses and saw all the evidence and everything else seriously thought about granting her probation. And then the prosecution was upset about that naturally. And so the judge said, OK, I understand that no court in California has ever given a murderer um, probation. So he gave the next lowest sentence, which was seven years to life on each of the two counts of murder and one count of conspiracy. And then he ran them all concurrent. And at that time, Leslie had over eight years of credit for time served. So she was eligible to be paroled at the time she was sentenced. 
Wow. It's uh, the, the detail, of course, the nuance here is uh, extraordinary. And of course, this is the detail that we're going to talk about after the break. Uh, there's so much more to get into. And the other important thing to mention before we do go is that um, is that Leslie wasn't involved in the um, the Sharon Tate murders on the first night. It was a subsequent night uh, where she uh, is involved in the LaBianca murders of uh, Leon uh, and, and his wife, Rosemary. And we'll get into that detail again after the break. Now, do you have an upcoming community event rally? March festival or fundraiser that you could do with some free publicity. Well, TNT wants to promote it for you. Simply visit our What's On events calendar on the TNT website and submit your event details and we'll get the word out. Helping you make a difference on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. TNT's Mark Morano. This just in, we have a new way that's proven effective in dealing with climate protesters who deign to block highways, streets and other public areas. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this appears to be the most effective way. We have a uh, we have a field shot, a correspondent on the scene. Let's go to clip four and take a look at how to deal with climate protesters when they block your way on your morning commute. I don't want to see protests shut down. But obviously, when you're blocking traffic and you're doing that, you need to be dealt with. I thought this was a great vigilante way of dealing with it. Mark Morano on today's News Talk TNT. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans, that's real. That's substantive. That's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. The Net Zero Con will leave millions of citizens dependent on state handouts. It isn't a theory. It's an agenda. There is no climate emergency. On air 24-7. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour is lawyer Rich Pfeiffer, the man responsible for getting the release of Leslie Van Houten, one of the women involved in the Charles Manson murders after serving 50 years behind bars. Now, Rich, there are multiple murders to discuss and this obsession that uh, Manson had, uh, I guess a wannabe rock star musician, but uh, there was another musician, Gary Hinman, that was killed before the, uh, the Sharon Tate murders. Can you Provide a bit more detail there. Yes, uh, Manson believed that Gary Hinman um, inherited a bunch of money and they wanted his money. And so um, had basically had him killed. Bobby Beausoleil killed him in the end. And um, that was the first murder where uh, anyone dipped you know, their hands in the victim's blood and painted pig on the wall. And the same thing happened at the Tate murders and at the La Bianca murders. Um, there were three different police units um, interviewing the three different murders, investigating them. They were all in the same building on the same floor. They didn't think they were related at all. And the one thing the DA's office will agree on is that the police bungled the whole thing. 
And how many times do we hear that and the idea of not being able to make a connection that seems to be obvious that the same message or similar message is painted on the wall in blood at three separate, almost uh, recent, closely related murders in time and uh, and area. It, it's extraordinary. Now, the, the other part of the story is this fascination with the Beatles song Helter Skelter. How does that come into play? Manson was totally enamored by the Beatles. He thought that they were talking to him through the White Album. And um, that's just a tangent that he went off on. Um, he would listen to the White Album over and over again um, while he had Leslie reading him um, the Book of Revelations from the Bible over and over again. It's it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, and of course, he's taunting people from prison for years. People are expecting that he's going to uh, perhaps show some remorse, uh, some sort of apology or understanding, but he doesn't. He just goes full on uh, the other way. And uh, and so again, journalists are reporting and saying that this is just uh, the rantings of a madman. Do, do you consider Manson was insane, or do you think he was just uh, a level of criminality or uh, beyond anything that we've seen before? I think he was, um, the more I learned, you know, there's more theories that came up, but I truly believe that he was being controlled by the CIA with the MK Ultra um, team. Okay, because this is where it becomes fascinating, right? Because uh, MK Ultra today seems to be surfacing. It was just a couple of years ago in Australia uh, on the ABC, our national broadcaster and uh, and print media, uh, a young journalist uh, wrote a story about MK Ultra in Australia in the '60s, which confirmed it all. And his um, information went on a particular psychiatrist known as Martin Orn that came to Australia. Uh, this particular journalist's story didn't go too far. Uh, but did at least acknowledge that this had happened. Um, the, the journalist sort of cut it off and said that, uh, look, it, it was tried, it didn't work, and they kind of moved on. But it opened the door to uh, to victims here in Australia coming forward and speaking out. One famous victim by the name of Fiona Barnett uh, talked in great detail about uh, what had happened to her uh, in, in Australia and overseas in various different um, uh organisations, etc., explained with great detail, named names. And of course, she's not the only one. We've uh, spoken recently on this show to Kathy O'Brien, uh, another victim uh, in the United States that was sold into the program by her father in a tragic set of circumstances because uh, she was born into a third generation incestuous family. Her own father was abused. Her own father then became the abuser and was caught uh, selling um, uh, images that he'd taken uh, through the post and uh, a politician knocked on the door, informed him that he'd been caught, but if he'd sold his daughter into the program, uh, he would be um, uh, would would not suffer any consequences. And uh, and then it swung the other way. Kathy says, all of a sudden, my father, who was very poor, became quite wealthy because he was awarded all of these government contracts, and it didn't matter that his daughter had been sold into this program. How rich did you first discover MK Ultra was a real thing and not just something that had been made up and was some form of conspiracy theory? Well, when I heard about it. Um and it wasn't that long ago, it was about 12 years ago. It was just before I started representing Leslie. Um, you know, I was appalled. Um, that program, it went under different names, but the main one was MKUltra, and it went on for 20 years. 
And um, the plan was if they ever got caught that they would destroy all the documents. And they got caught and they destroyed what they thought were all the documents. They missed 20,000 documents that were stored in the wrong place because they were the financial records. Um, so they, it, it proved that this program existed and it went on. Um, um, what they were doing was they were um, having prostitutes drug their Johns and filming them through two-way mirrors and trying to see what the reaction was. And the, the project was um, experiments in using LSD as a mind control drug and an interrogation drug. And um, they believed that the Russians were doing the same thing. So they bought all of the LSD that they could find in the world so the Russians wouldn't have any. Manson had no shortage of it. So, you know, that's where I started to clue in the connection. Goodness me, that is uh, some interesting sleuthing there. So you put the connection because you, you find out that the U.S. has basically um, monopolized LSD uh, at that stage and that Manson can get his hands on it. Are you aware of just how much LSD that they that Manson would have been able to get his hands on and how much they were consuming? It, it's completely foreign to me. Uh, I'm just interested to just kind of work out um, uh, the, the volume, for example, and therefore the ease in which he gets it and that it doesn't seem to be an issue at the time. I have no idea how he got it. What he would do is he would put double doses of LSD on everybody's tongue. It, so they had no option but to take it. Um, and they would do it at night in a large circle where he's you know, basically in control of everybody. And he used a lot of peer pressure amongst the cult members um, do, because he couldn't watch everybody. So he had them watching each other and reporting back to him. Um, he did some violence with some of the cult members when he was displeased with them. He never did that to Leslie, but Leslie saw clear right in front of her what he would do to others and knew that he would do the same thing to her if she was out of line. Now, that brings up a really interesting point, because if, if Leslie at this time is believing that um, Manson is Jesus Christ and yet she sees this, does this cause some sort of conflict within her at this stage, or is she too far gone and just believes that she's got no control over her own, uh, her own thoughts and body and actions at this stage? This didn't happen overnight. It started off as this hippie commune in the, in the late 60s, and it started up in San Francisco, where that was the summer of, you know, you know, peace and love and sex and drugs. And, and, um, and Leslie was basically escaping and went up there and got recruited into this um, cult. It, it, it took two months of convincing her to come down to this hippie commune. And then um, once there, it, yeah, everything was okay in the beginning, and it slowly evolved into this, you know, murderous, controlled cult. See, this is the thing, isn't it? Because Leslie's a 19-year-old girl in, in, in the summer of 69, literally, uh, and, and that paints a very, very different picture for uh, people looking back in time, wondering how it is that she could be so uh, out of sorts. Uh, so you have to provide some level of uh, innocence uh, there. But, if, but then she takes two months to get down there uh, to the commune. Um, what finally gets her down? What, what, what makes the decision for her to get to finally surrender and go down to the commune? She was out of money. She needed a place to go. Catherine Cher, her AKA Gypsy, um, was the one who recruited Leslie and with Bobby Beausoleil, but mostly it was Catherine. And um, 
just, you know, was telling Leslie about this wonderful commune with a leader that seemed to know everything. And um, he was very insightful and it was just a wonderful place to go. Um, and as, as nice as that sound, it still took two months to convince Leslie to go. Incredible, isn't it? Because uh, looking back and you look at films of, uh, you know, communes and uh, and various other films at the time and the Easy Riders and various other things like that, it all just seemed to be the, the way it was. It was free and easy and uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll, of course. Uh, and then this is the this is the one story that turns the entire thing on its head. So wrong place, wrong time. Of all the communes in the world, Leslie Van Houten has to uh, end up in this uh, Manson cult. It's it's an incredible incredible story. Now, if we just switch gear uh, and look more into the MK Ultra story, uh, the infamous Doctor Louis Jolly West appears, and he's got this connection between LSD, mind control, the Manson family, and the U.S. government. What do you know about Jolly West? Well, I, I know about all of his clients, and, and the, the list is incredible. You know, Patty Hearst and Sirhan Sirhan, Jack Ruby, um, Timothy Leary. Um, Oswald had some contact with him. It's not known how deep that was. Um, and what really concerned me was he went and visited Leslie in the 90s in prison, and Leslie had no idea who he was. Geez, that's uh, that's something else, isn't it? So now we've got a name that's got an incredible coincidence. Look at these names that you're mentioning: Paddy Hurst, Jack Ruby, the man who takes out Lee Harvey Oswald, possibly Oswald himself. What's the connection? You know, it's, it's our government gone crazy um, and hiding it all and doing illegal activities. Um, yeah, I just. I, I was, I'm still have a hard time understanding what they were doing. What the biggest problem I have understanding is how not everybody in our country even knows about it. Very few people have any idea what MK Ultra was. Mm. You, you know, this is it. And of course, I, I did mention Sirhan. Sirhan, of course, was the person um, uh, considered to be the killer of Robert Kennedy, the then um, uh, presidential candidate in 1968. And yet it's his, it's his own son, Robert Kennedy Jr., that talks in great detail that it couldn't have been Sirhan. Sirhan that killed his father. I mean, this story just gets wilder and wilder, Rich. i working on Sirhan's case. And I sat there with hours talking to him, and I believe he's very honest with me. He has absolutely no memory whatsoever of what happened. His gun only held eight bullets, 13 shots were fired. Um, Bobby Kennedy was shot in the back of the head, point blank range. Sirhan was coming at him in the front. He was six to 10 feet from him. He never got to him. Sirhan shot five people, just not Bobby. And he shot Paul Hurd in the head. Paul Hurd went to Sirhan's several of his parole hearings and advocated for his release, as did Bobby Kennedy Jr. They want to find out what was really happening. And there's no way our government's going to let that, that go. Tex Watson made tapes um, when he found out there was a warrant for his arrest. He was in Texas. He left before everybody got arrested. And um, so he, his family hired an attorney and he made these tapes and they're probably everything that was happening at the ranch before, during and after the murders. And to this day, the L.A. Um, prosecutors refuse to release those tapes. 
They've lied to the Supreme Court about them. I've been to the Supreme Court, uh, California Supreme Court, four times trying to get those tapes. And um, each time the Supreme Court has made the other side have to answer. And I went for different reasons every time as the laws were changing. And, um, and they, they basically lied to the Supreme Court. They lied to the parole board. And Jackie Lacey herself lied to the governor in a letter and gave it to the press that they printed in full. And um, I used prosecutorial misconduct in one of the writs I did for Leslie. And the judge um, said that that issue is better dealt with by a state bar investigation. So I reported, you know, Jackie and her four high ranking deputies uh, to the state bar. And Leslie was all upset. She goes, oh, they're really going to come after me now. And I go, look, they can't do any more to you than they're already doing. Um, and lo and behold, after that happened, there's never been one peep out of the DA's office about any Manson-related anything. So it did have some positive impact. You know, when you consider the work that you have to do in this uh, this this legal battle here with these multiple cases and hearings, et cetera. This is something that, again, most people don't really appreciate the amount of work that's involved here. How do you deal with the lumps and bumps along the way, the setbacks and the disappointments and the realising that you're not being treated, like you're going in there treating this with the utmost respect, truth and honesty, but you're not getting that back in return from the institutions that are meant to be the ones doing the real work here. Where do you find this betrayal in the system and, and is it even workable at this stage or is it just something that you just got to play like dodge cars and, and get out the other side? One thing that did happen the whole time I was on this case with Leslie is I don't think there were any setbacks where we went backwards. We were always going forward. We just didn't go as far forward as we wanted to along the way. Um, what was astounding was we were the ones telling the truth mm. and the government's the one trying to hide everything. And they were the ones lying to, I mean, if I lied to the Supreme Court and to the governor, I would be disbarred as an attorney. This is it, right? But then you're finding that the government is the one telling the stories. How, how do you rationalise that with the system? Do you, I mean, what I'm trying to get to is, do you at your level, qualified in the game, literally on the field playing against these people, and you realise that the um, that the system is broken, uh, how do you get up the next day and go through it? You, is it just, you just keep trying and keep trying and keep trying, knowing that uh, the truth will eventually come to the surface, even if it is the government that is the one that's not being honest and truthful in this story? How do you do it? Well, the more that they lied, the, the more it motivated me because I knew it was onto something. Mm. Um, you know, so it was easy. I, they were the ones fueling me. If they just were quiet, and didn't lie, you know, there would have been a time maybe where, hey, this isn't going to ever go. But I knew from the very beginning that Leslie probably would get out. And, um, you know, I didn't get her out. Make that clear. She got herself out. Um, I All I did was represent her and make her what she had done in prison and, every, and all of the remorse and everything she tried to do her compassion for the victims' families. Um, I was just bringing that to light, but Leslie did it. I didn't do it. Mm. And that's that's really interesting. I'd like to get into that after the break, actually, is a bit more about what Leslie did in the 50 years in prison because she was an exemplary prisoner who uh, managed to influence and, and, and benefit and change the lives for the better for, for many uh, prisoners. And I think that's a, a story that deserves to be told. Uh, it's just, just unbelievable that, again, as I said at the beginning of this hour, 55 years on, and we're still talking about it and still learning about things. And 
even when we look back and uh, and as you said there with this uh, Jolly West and the links to Sirhan, Sirhan and Jack Ruby alone, both linked to um to 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 the killing of the two Kennedy brothers, one a president and one a presidential candidate, is quite extraordinary. And it relates back to uh, to where we are today. We've got um, Robert Kennedy Jr., of course, a presidential candidate, um, dropping truth bombs left, right and centre and seeing what's coming up. I, I, I keep saying it, Rich, that um, I have this strange feeling that in the back of my mind that Donald Trump and him will come to an agreement and Kennedy will become his attorney general should Trump be returned to the White House and watch out when that happens because uh, there is a lot of undoing and unraveling and truth that comes out. Uh, do you look at things today and think that that the world could actually take some form of revolution uh, that will be able to bring these matters out and finally we get some reality and truth and can deal with what we've been um, put up against for so long? I, I'm just, they have so much, uh, the, the political process in our country is so bad. We have two parties that hate each other. They make themselves sign, you know, oaths that they'll represent whoever the candidate for their party is. Um, and whether they're the best person or not, it doesn't. And if they don't do that, they'll be blackballed and their political careers are over. And so these, you know, the Republican committee and the Democratic National Committee, they are running the country and, you know, they get what they want and they're in total charge. And all of the politicians are doing what they say because they can't, they'll never be able to run again if they don't. This is so interesting, isn't it? Because part of what you said earlier there with the MK Ultra story was that these uh, prostitutes were used to um, to uh, drug the uh, the Johns, and then they were examined behind the two way mirrors. And of course, we hear about the Epstein story, the Hugh Hefner story, where he was using secret cameras in bedrooms, as reported by his uh, wife only last week. Uh, she questioned him about that, and he said, "Well, it's my house, whatever." But of course, there are links to uh, with Hefner to the CIA, Epstein uh, to the spy agencies around the world, and you wonder. If this was the discovery that created this business model that you talk about, and perhaps the compromise that keeps this whole situation running indefinitely, you know, part of it is when you look at John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy being killed. There's a lot of people that wanted them dead. I didn't know it was our government. Mm. That's uh, it's very very sad, isn't it? That uh, but then of course that what that does is expose what we've now learned is a term that we call the deep state. That somehow behind the scenes there's this invisible hand that is uh, moving very differently against the uh, elected executive that's meant to control uh, how the United States works. Uh, works the most powerful public office on the planet, and uh, it seems to be not in uh, full control of itself. And again, the threat that Donald Trump posed in 2016, and again in 2024 as we look on. What we'll do is we'll take a quick break and we'll come back with more with Rich Pfeiffer, my guest this hour. You're watching and listening to Weekends with Jason Olborn here on TNT Radio. My dad was a farmer. The guy was bigger than life. He wasn't someone that liked to show his emotion or liked to show when he was struggling, but we all struggle. I want to show emotion to my kids. It's something that brings me so much joy, and I want them to see me working through things. Allow your kids to know that it's okay to struggle, that even dad doesn't know the answer sometimes, but we're going to figure it out together. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk. 
TNT. You don't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. I think that was a George Harrison song, and it feels like it's just coming through in all of this. And it's a wonderful examination with a very special man, Rich Pfeiffer, who's able to uh, make it his own. And I bet you if I say what a great job, he'll go, well, as he just said before, it was Leslie that got herself out, but someone had to be there. It's incredible how these relationships come about and in adversity that uh, people can make uh, new of their life, despite what had happened before. There would be many, many people in the world, Rich, that would say that Leslie Leslie Van Houten should never, ever have been released from prison. Uh, you saw it from Jerry Brown, the governor of California. You saw it from Gavin Newsom, who uh, pretty much did the same thing until he decided not to go further. You know, earlier in the show, um, uh, my first guest, Brad Olson, mentioned a name, Judge Edward Taylor. Was that a judge involved in Leslie's case? Not at all, no. Okay. Okay, because he mentioned that he knew this person who was involved somewhere along the case and uh, and knew him, and he, he was interested because he was following in the Leslie Van Houten story, um, and, and he too was supporting her release. So it's interesting that there were lots of people that would support just as much as there weren't. But where we're going with this um, this uh, part of the conversation is, what did Leslie do in prison that uh, that that showed that she had changed so much from the young kid she was some fifty years earlier? Um. In the beginning, the Manson ladies in prison were separated from the rest of the prison. Um, and they were separated and they were given um, some psychological uh, help with um, some students at a university that were um, in psychology classes and everything. And Leslie really jumped into that. She, um, she had a conversation with her mother right when she got arrested and her mother told her, you don't know how long you're going to live or anything else. But, you know, she just challenged Leslie to live the best life that she possibly could. And Le Leslie did do that. And then um, all the way through uh, her prison terms and everything, she just earned respect from the entire prison staff. I represented Leslie at five parole hearings. She got granted parole all five times. And the first one, the warden at the time had made a public statement saying that the first person that should be paroled from that prison is Leslie. And every break in that hearing, the, the warden would come running into our break room, how's the hearing going? <laughs> and I mean, Leslie had earned that kind of support from the staff. And when she got granted parole, I went back in, we were making parole plans because we didn't know if they were to let her out right away or not. And every single staff member that I, uh, came in contact with the prison, either shook my hand or hugged me and said, thank you. And, you know, that's what they thought of Leslie. And it didn't happen overnight. I mean, she earned that. It was a long, slow earning of respect from everybody. Uh, it, it's a wonderful story, isn't it? But does she study in this period of time? Does she, uh, how does she build this relationship and earn the respect? Um, what is it that a prisoner does in, in her case? I mean, what do they allow her to do when she's inside? Well, she went to all the rehabilitative programs and everything they had at the prison um, and she embraced them and um, she actually became a facilitator in most of them. Um, so she was, and she was tutoring um, some people from uh, Chafee College, had a, a college program at the prison, and Leslie was one of their main tutors. And um, they wanted to hire Leslie when she gets out. And uh, so <laughs> she was, she just was able to, you know, not ask for anything, just slowly earn respect. 
Now, in that in that situation, I can imagine how uh, horrific it would be. Our own Julian Assange, for example, is locked up in Belmarsh Prison, rotting away, you know, trying to get released. There's a, a an undercurrent of, of support. There's more and more Australian politicians demanding his release. He's hearing coming up um, in February uh, 20, actually, in the UK, that people are hoping that something will prevent his extradition to the United States. So there's a man at the absolute bottom uh, of, of the mental, uh, uh, health nightmare that would be um, hurting many, many prisoners. But on the other side, in, in Leslie's case, she takes it the other way. She gets advice from mother, live the best life that you can whilst behind bars. May, is it maybe because her fate is determined that she can live this way and she's out in the prison population as opposed to a son who's locked up in isolation in smaller and smaller and darker and dingy pr um, prison cells year upon year? Is there a difference here in the process of how prisoners are somewhat treated in 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 case by case scenarios? What Leslie did do is she um, jumped into the rehabilitative program. She also um, got a college degree and then she got a master's degree. Her thesis was on sustained rehabilitation. Um, it's just a fabulous piece of work that she did on that. Um, and you know when someone gets jumps into education and starts to you know learn more about themselves and the world and everything else it's easier i think to move forward than it is to just sit there and say okay i'm locked up and this is a you know this is just a terrible thing and i'm not going to get out and, and just get depressed and mm -hmm. leslie didn't do that she just made the most of the situation and opportunities that would come her way so if you juxtapose that against Charles Manson, who spends the next uh, 48 years, give or take, locked behind bars, who just gets crazier and crazier, it seems, in the limited uh, in interviews that we've seen, how does he uh, deal with the situation of his incarceration by comparison? Well, Manson would never get out, um, no matter what. Um, Tex Watson, I don't think, will ever get out, although he should. Um, if, they, if they follow the law, which is he's not a current unreasonable risk to public safety if released, he should be released. And, and he's not. He's been a model prisoner. You know, he's become a minister and, um, you know, he's made the, the best life he can. Um, his attorneys and, and the other uh, Manson people's attorneys, they are not doing what I did with Leslie, which is go to the courts, file these writs. It's a lot of work, but if you're gonna sign up and represent these people, you better do the whole job, not just you know, grandstand at a parole hearing. That's the easy part. Gosh, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? So um, perhaps people are looking at the work that you've done, Rich, and realise that there's some uh, something to be gained by going down the same pathway, but they just don't perform the hard yards that are required, as you said, of presenting the writs and uh, and going through the processes, but just happy to be there at a parole hearing and banging on desks as if you're watching a, a, a rerun of My Cousin Vinny, for goodness sake. Uh, it's quite sad to think that uh, all lawyers, unfortunately, were not created equal, Rich. You know, and, and it, it's not as hard for them as it is for me because I did all these writs and everything and, and they're there. I made them public, use them, you know, if you use them to help somebody else, it, it, you know, the work I did is even better because it's going to benefit more people, but they're not, they're not doing it. Now, 
moving forward in the legal profession, we, we, we look at the uh, the situation with uh, the amount of legal cases piling up against Donald Trump in an election year that looks like political influence. We look at the Hunter Biden case and the Joe Biden bribery stories, et cetera, that don't seem to be getting off the ground. Do you look at it perhaps as uh, that this is part of the, the, the problem or is this part of the exposure of the problem now when, you, when we look back earlier in, in our discussion, talking about the government being the ones here that uh, can tell the fibs in the courtroom and it's uh, and it's the um, the the guilty, so to speak, that is the one telling the truth. You know, first of all, everybody, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, deserves a fair hearing in court. And that means they get a lawyer who's supposed to do their job and supposed to do everything they can ethically and honestly to try to help their clients. And sometimes it's a lot of work. Um, when I was doing Leslie's case, so many attorneys volunteered it to, to help, but they, they weren't qualified to do this end of the work. Nancy Tetro, um, about the last four years, um, I'm, I was at a seminar, uh, we were getting some training and she was there and she volunteered and she had done a lot of parole writs. So she was qualified and, um, and her style was completely opposite of mine. So it was a really good combination. So together we could brainstorm, we could edit each other's work and that made a big difference as well. So it wasn't just all me, it wasn't Leslie, and Nancy had her part in it. Um, Leslie's family and friends were very supportive along the way, they had their part in it. Um, so with everybody contributing, it, it's easier to do it than just, it wasn't just me by myself doing this. In the legal profession, do lawyers admire other lawyers? For example, is there some sort of hierarchy of realising that that particular person is uh, remarkable, brilliant, or one way or another? And does that inspire other lawyers to improve their own efforts? I recognise that. I recognise good lawyers and bad lawyers. And, um, and I try to, you know, what I'm teaching law school right now, and what I'm telling my students is, you need to build, you know, a, a, a group that you can communicate with, brainstorm with, trade ideas with, trade some briefs with, um, work together. It's so much easier. You'll be able to do more than anyone could ever do by themselves. So teamwork is just a, a tremendous, you know, asset. And, you know, I learned that in SEAL Team. Yeah, isn't that amazing that uh, one part of your life leads into another? How do you go from a, a Navy SEAL to deciding that the legal profession was where you wanted to be? Well, after I got out of SEAL team, I competed in hang gliding professionally for 18 years, going around the world competing. I was in Australia for the world championships in 87. And um, no, um, and then when I got too old for that, it's like, okay, what am I going to do now? And um, I figured a way to go to college and law school all in three years. And uh, so I did that. And I figured lawyering is a sport I can compete in until I'm 80. So that, I'm a competitive person. That's me. Uh, isn't it wonderful that uh, that life begins whenever you want it to begin and uh, you keep going as long as you want to do and therefore you can live three separate careers in one lifetime. Is the Leslie Van Houten case the, uh, the, the, the case that you will remember for all time, that this was what made you and defines you as, as the reason you wanted to be a lawyer in the first place? Uh, you know, it's, it's the case that I spent the most time on by a long shot. Um, but so many of the cases I've done, I've been able to help people change their lives. I've, I do a lot of child dependency cases where abused or neglected children are removed from their families. And 
re, reuniting the families and everything to me is extremely important work. And I've been doing a lot of that. And I still get thank you notes on Thanksgiving. I didn't even know they made Thanksgiving cards until I became a lawyer. Um, so no, it's, uh, it's very rewarding. Uh, look, it's wonderful to uh, to understand that there's a lot more to the legal profession. As I keep saying in this interview, that uh, lawyers do get a bad rap. Uh, and when you see a story uh, involving pro bono and and the work that you've done here, and it's just the idea that it wasn't just you. It's it, and of course it is Leslie, but it's not just Leslie either. Because no matter what she tried, it was because of the fact that you and your partnership there in, in this particular case is able to achieve this. And one must think that that must be the best of what life is all about uh, after fifty years uh, of this incredible Charles Manson story that goes along the way and we uncover uh, this part of this Jolly West, the doctor who has these uh, incredible list of clients and wondering what the connection is, the link to MKUltra, the link to LSD, the uh, the innocent so-called sex, drug and rock and roll 60s that ends abruptly with the Manson murders that take place in 1969. And we look at all of this and put it all together and realise that we really don't know what we don't know even 50 years later and we're still discovering. Is there anything left that you, that you want to discover uh, in, in the rest of your career, Rich? You know, I I still want the Tex Watson tapes. Um, Tom O'Neill wrote the book Chaos. He gets a lot of credit for what I learned about MKUltra and the workings of this. And um, Bo Edlin, who had uh, the website cielodrive.com, he was also very um, helpful in the three of us together are the only ones working to try to get the text watching tapes. Nobody else in the world cares. But what are they hiding? Why why are they so secretive? They're so old. Um, they lied to the Supreme Court about them. Um, they said that if we disclose the tapes, they'll jeopardize ongoing investigations into unsolved crimes. And um, the law had changed, and I got a youthful offender sentencing hearing for Leslie when she was 67 years old. And that judge said, I want that investigative uh, law officer in here. And they said that Leslie was only mentioned four times in the tapes. He goes, I want those transcripts. I want the four places flagged. And the DA says, well, there might be more than four. And I said, well, what do you mean? Did you read those? Because I had a motion to disqualify the whole DA's office because they had the tapes and I didn't. And... Um, the, the officer comes in and he tells the judge there never were any of these ongoing investigations into unsolved crimes. So they lied to the Supreme Court. The judge starts reading the transcripts. At lunchtime, he stops. I'm on page 84. She's already mentioned eight times. I mean, what what are they hiding? Is there something in there that maybe everybody could get a whole new trial? Is that what it is? I don't know. They've given us the license to speculate because they won't be honest. Well, well, this is it, isn't it? And, and speculate you must because you have to ask the question and you can't just be confined to what you're told that you're allowed to think about. Um, and, and, and you should be allowed to, as you said, speculate, ask the questions. And I guess that's part of this this process. And, and I don't understand, again, in, in scientific discovery, it's all about uh, observation and, uh, and and looking for patterns, et cetera. And, and, and what we're learning here in the legal process is that uh, the, the observing is telling us that the government repeatedly 
is being dishonest and therefore uh, where there's smoke, there's fire uh, somewhere along the lines. And as so someone who's got military and legal training that's saying, what are they hiding? Surely the goodness has justification to be able to say, I demand answers in, in, in all of this because the truth shall set us free at the end of the day. Uh, we sit here scratching our heads wondering when 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 all of that will, will be the case or how long it can be. It feels to me like there is, the, again, this hidden hand and whether it's the spy agencies involved in these clandestine operations to um, to uh, to do things that they're not allowed to do in a society that's meant to protect everyone and clearly doesn't. It's it's awkward to understand how it is. But Rich, we've only got uh, probably 30 seconds to go. What is it that you really want to do next? I want the Tex Watson tapes. <laughs> <laughs> and go fishing, I, I perhaps. To, I'm, I'm 70 years old. I want to wind down my practice. I want to start fishing more and playing golf some more. I just started playing golf this last year. And uh, so uh, I just, I, you know, I still, I'll never stop working because I love it too much, but um, I just want to reduce the amount. Yeah, absolutely. Rich Pfeiffer, it is a life's work that you're able to share in an extraordinary case, possibly the most uh, notorious case in US criminal history. And the only, uh, well, to get a lady out of jail after 50 years is, is a story that is just one for the ages. Thank you, Rich, for your time today. It's been a delight. We're going to take a break. We'll have the news. And after that, a whole brand new hour here on TNT Radio.